can have a seat and a great singing and a cactus uh, venue, Northridge and Chapel, as you guys join us. I uh, hope you had a great time of worship as well. And then certainly uh, all of you joining us online. Uh, you know, when I watched online a, a few weeks ago, uh, I was off a few weeks ago and was at home. I, uh, I found it harder to engage in worship. Uh, you know, the sermon I, I dialed into, but in, in the, you know, the, the familiarity of my, my family room, but I disciplined myself to do so nonetheless and found it really, really beneficial. And so I hope all of you at home uh, find a way to not just listen to the music, but engage it. Uh, we just sang here a, a new song called New Wine, and, and I love that song, and, and, and yet I laugh at myself because when we first introduced that a few weeks or months ago, I know I'm getting older when, you know, when Derek or somebody will say, hey, we're going to learn a new song today, and go, oh, I don't want to learn a new song. You know, I, I like the old songs, I mean, which aren't that old, and you know, don't teach us a new song. And yet every time they teach us a new song, though I fight it a little bit in my spirit, <laughs> True story, I find myself waking up on Monday morning singing it. And, and so I go, yeah, that was actually a good song. And I feel that way about this one. So hopefully it ministers to your soul. I, I want to thank uh, all of you here and then certainly at our other campuses and venues uh, for cooperating with us, being patient with us. You know, uh, I said when the whole COVID-19 thing hit in March, I think I said it in one of my videos, that this thing's a moving target and as all of you know, it's moving the wrong way in Arizona right now. And so, you know, some of you go, oh, I don't like masks, I don't want to wear a mask. And, and Scott, our executive pastor, I think said it so well in his email to us on Friday, and that is that we're not making this a political issue. Uh, some of you have strong opinions on it, we respect that. I mean, I got strong opinions when it comes to political issues, but what we've chosen to do as a church, and our elders lead the way in this, is for now, because it's just not that big of an issue, abide by what our cultural leaders are asking us to do as we gather together. And so thank you for cooperating with us in that. Here's the good news. Nobody's asking you to deny the resurrection of Jesus. Do you all understand that? Nobody's asking you to deny the word of God, to change your stance on abortion or marriage or anything silly like that. Nothing big has changed. We're just simply saying let's cooperate for now and see if we can't do our small part in trying to protect as I've said a thousand times, the vulnerable in our community in any way that we can. So again, thanks for cooperating with us on that. Well, that's not what I want to talk about today, as you all know. We're in a, a wonderful, wonderful series out of my, one of my favorite Old Testament books, the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah. So we're, we're getting into the home stretch. It's a five-week look at four chapters. We're in week four. And so let's bow and pray. All of us, let's bow and pray, and then we're going to dive right in. God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that we can celebrate the fathers among us. And Lord, I love how Ephesians 3 says it when Paul says, I kneel before the Father from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives its name. So Lord, we know that the concept that we have of fatherhood, if it's good at all, comes from you. 
And so Lord, I do pray just a quick blessing upon the fathers here and with us online and at other campuses and venues. Help us to be good like you. And Lord, rub, rub off or uh, carve off the rough edges that we have in our souls and in our lives and make us better men and fathers as we move forward. Lord, this book's gonna help us. I pray that as we uh, turn to chapter three today of Jonah, that you would, uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak to us. And, uh, and may we understand rightly uh, the, the narrative here and then apply it diligently to our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, and we can all agree together by saying, amen. So if you have heard one thing so far in this series, or if you're joining us for the very first time in this series, here is all you really need to hear up to this point, and that is that Jonah ran from God, God chased after him, and eventually Jonah turned and now is walking with God again. And that's the first half of the book. Jonah ran, God chased, and Jonah turned or ran back to God. But all involved was turning. And we've likened this to our walk with God today. But we've realized that running from God for you and I is going to be a reality at times in our relationship with him. And so learning to run back to him or turn back to him is something that we have needed to learn as well. And yet, if you're tracking with this story, we're only halfway through. It's tempting for some people when they think of Jonah to think, well, he ran and then he ran back. Well, that's only chapters one and two. What about chapters three and four? What more does God have for us? Or more importantly, what does he want from us once we have realized we run from him and then realize that we need to run back to him? Now what? Uh, what more might God want for us? And, and there is more, and that's what these final two chapters in Jonah are all about, and they continue this theme of running. You're gonna like this. If, if we learned in chapter one that we run from God, and if we learned in chapter two that we need to run to God, then chapter three is gonna tell us how we now can run for God, and then next week, chapter four is gonna tell us how we can run with God. So running to God, or running from God, to God, for God, and with God. You've just nailed the book of Jonah with its theme of running. And so Jonah is going to teach us today how once we've run back to God, how we can now run for him. So what I'd love to do is just read the chapter for you. As many of you know, we're at the point in the story where Jonah was in the belly of the whale. He's spit up on dry ground now, and he's turned back to God and said, okay, God, I'm yours. And here's what happens next. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. 
And he issued a proclamation and published through all Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So here's the deal, folks, and you don't want to miss this. Once you and I have settled that life is about learning to run to God, not from him, he now has a task for us, a special assignment, if you will, and it's our main point today, and it's simply this, and that is that we now need to run for God by carrying his message into the culture around us. Let me repeat that. We need to now run for him, stop running from him, run for him by carrying his message into the culture around us. And just so we're clear, I mean with the people that we work with on a daily level, with our neighbors next door and down the street, with the service providers that we rub shoulders with, with our friends and family members, and now even with all the people that we interact with on Zoom, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Nextdoor, email, and all the other digital mediums that we use in our COVID-19 world, God calls us to run our lives for him by carrying his message of love and grace in Jesus to those around us. It's an evangelistic calling given to everyone who has been touched by God's love and grace. And the cool thing about Jonah's story is that he reveals to us some guidance on how we can run best for God. Three things we learn from Jonah chapter three on how to run for God and sharing his message with those closest to us on a daily level. And here is the first thing that Jonah reveals. And that is that we need to be clear about the message we bring to others or to personalize it, be clear about the message you bring to others. Now, to see this, because it's really, really, really obvious in the text here, look with me again at verses 1 and 2, and let's look closer. It begins by saying, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, because there was a word that came in chapter 1, same word, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, here it is, the message that I tell you, the message that I tell you, Jonah. And so simply note that God had something to say to Jonah that he was now to pass on to those in this very decadent and secular city of Nineveh. And we don't have to wonder what this message is because as I said, it was already given in chapter one, verse two, before Jonah ran from God, God said, I want you to cry against Nineveh because their wickedness has come up against me. So it was a message of repentance, don't miss this, that God had in those Old Testament times 
for Nineveh. It was a secular and decadent nation. God isn't happy when any of his creation are wandering from him, let alone rebelling against him. And so Jonah was a prophet, and he said, hey, I'm going to do a one-off right now. Instead of always speaking to Israel, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them to repent as well, and to turn to me or else. And so this is exactly what Jonah does. It says in verse four here, it says, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. We assume he told them just a little bit more, though we'll see next week that his attitude wasn't great in all of this. But we assume that he gave the full message that God said, and that is that they needed to repent and turn to God, or he was going to destroy the city. That was the message that Jonah was given by God to give to Nineveh. And, And so simply note what's happening here. This is important for you and I. Jonah receives a message from God, again, a a message of repentance during those Old Testament times, and then without changing or altering this message, he delivers it up to those whom God told him to give it to. And if you're tracking with me at all, the point is really clear, and that is that you and I are called to do the same thing today, likewise, as we run for God into our Nineveh, our culture around us. There's an important distinction to make right now. That's Old Testament times. You and I are living in post-Jesus times, and for those of you who've been around the spiritual block, you know where I'm going with this. The message Jonah had was in keeping with God's Old Testament law because the Old Testament was about obedience to the law that would reveal sin and would show God's holiness and righteousness. That was the call in the Old Testament. But now that Jesus is here, the law is fulfilled and completed. As Paul would say, it was a tutor leading us to Jesus. And now you and I are living in an age of grace where God's message is that we still are sinful and need him, but we can find forgiveness and help in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 verse 1 would nail it when it said the law was a shadow of the realities that were to come in Christ. So you and I have an amazing message to give to our culture around us. God has given us a message, though it's a fulfilled and completed message than Jonah had, but we're likewise to take it into our Nineveh. And folks, the reason that this is so important for you and me today is that one thing I've noticed in 40 years of being a Christian is that many good-hearted followers of Jesus, when they hear what we're talking about today, do one of two things with this call. And tell me if this is not true. When they hear the call that they need to run for God by taking his message into the culture around him, they do one of two things. First, they say, no, I'm not gonna do that, God. I'm not going to risk my reputation. I'm not going to be one of those Jesus freaks. It's too awkward. I'd rather not do that. They've heard Jim Gaffigan's famous comedian line where he says he was on an airplane once and the guy next to him said, do you want to talk about Jesus? He was like, no, I don't want to talk about Jesus. And we feel, I don't want to be one of those weirdos that's talking to people about Jesus. So when we hear the call to talk to others about their spiritual life and our spiritual life, we simply say, God, I think I'd rather not do that. 
So we go to church, we go to Bible study, we tie 10 on the gross, we do all the things that we do, but we're not going to talk to others about God. That's one of the first responses that people have. But what you're hearing today is that you don't want to be a Jonah. Jonah said that in chapter 1, and it didn't go very well for him, did it? And so you and I, I'm not trying to give a foreboding message, but if you want to just stop ping-ponging back and forth between running from God and to him and from God and to him and from God and to him, which most Christians do all of their lives, why don't you grow up and start to become somebody who runs for God in this world and take him up on his call to just move into the culture around you and lovingly and non-threateningly, we'll talk about how to do this in a second here, talk to others about the message that has changed your life. But then there's a second thing that Christians tend to do. First, they shrink back, but then have you noticed that when many Christians do enter into the fray, they're not very clear about the message that God has given for our culture today. I don't know if you ever noticed that. Again, one of the things that I love about Jonah is that though it was a simple message of repentance, like John the Baptist, he didn't mince any words. As we're gonna see in a minute, he's like walking down the center of Nineveh, which is Scottsdale Road for our purposes, just saying, repent, turn or burn. He was really clear on the message for his day. And today, you and I have a message of grace found in Jesus, and I've just watched Christians, they're not as clear on what the gospel is as we could or should be. And the reason that I know this is true, gang, and I've told you this before, but it happens almost weekly to me, and this is really helpful. This will take the edge off for some of you when you're talking to people about spiritual things. You know, I'll be in a setting, and somebody will say, what do you do? And you know, I say, well, I'm a pastor. And again, 60, 70% of the time, they can't wait to get out of the conversation. But 30 or 40% of the time, they're, they're interested. And they're mainly interested because I don't seem weird or abnormal or something like that. And so they, they want to know, well, what's up with you? And we get on to, you know, what the, what the gospel is. And eventually they have all these questions as modern people do. You know, I mean, how can you believe Jesus is the only way? And Do you really believe all the fantastical things in the Bible? And, you know, what about suffering and pain? All good questions. But here's what I do. Before I even go into any of that, I say this. I say, time out. Before we get into any discussion on what the gospel is, I just need to ask you, and I say this all the time to people, has anybody ever explained to you the gospel in three minutes or less with such absolute clarity that you could repeat it back to me so that we're clear on what we're dealing with? And what do you think the answer is the majority of times when I ask people that in our modern world? No. With all the Christians that they have rubbed shoulders with, with their Aunt Tilly, who's a Christian, with their kids who are dabbling in faith, with going to one of the 319,000 Protestant churches in the United States, they have not heard the gospel with such clarity that they could repeat it back to me. So I just take that opportunity and I say to them, would you mind if I take three minutes and explain to you the gospel? And they say to me, you can't really do it in three minutes. I go, let's time it. Start your watch right now. And I've showed you guys how to do this before. It's not rocket science. Four words that I say to people. I say, if you can memorize four words, you get the gospel. The gospel is this, God, sin, Christ, and isn't this glorious you? 
God, sin, Christ, and you. That's the gospel. And then I just take a minute or two and I'll say, here's where it begins. God is real. He's not a pipe dream. He's not a figment of your imagination. He really exists. He's sovereign. He's good. He's holy. And get this, he loves you. I know it's hard to believe, but he does. And he longs to be in wonderful, life-giving, personal, intimate relationship with you each moment of each day that is so real that it's going to take you all the way to heaven. But then I say, my guess is that doesn't describe your walk with God right now. (laughs) And so there's a reason for that. The Bible says it is because of sin. That we're all born in a state of separation from God where we, we don't know him and we feel distant from him. And then you have these behaviors in your life. My guess is you'll be honest about that in which you know they're wrong. And though it's enough for your wife or husband to forgive you, God, who is holy, has to find some way to forgive you. That's why you feel the distance. And that brings us to the third word, Christ. You might wonder why Jesus. Well, Jesus came, get this, to bring you back to God. He came to forgive you of your sin. And though we could go into all the Old Testament stuff and a wooden cross and blood atonement and all this, forget that for right now. Just suffice it to say that he died for you to bring you to God so that your sin would be forgiven, the slate would be wiped clean. But it doesn't stop there. God sinned Christ. There's one more piece to it, and that involves you. You need to get to the point where you say yes to God through accepting Jesus. That if you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, the leader and forgiver of your life, you've now entered into that wonderful life-giving relationship with God. And then I'll say to people, so at this point, before I answer now all your questions and objections, can you at least repeat back to me what I just said? And they'll say, well, you, you kind of packed a lot in, 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 you know, three minutes. And I'll say, okay, well, then let's just say four words together. Now, let's you and I all say these together. Ready? One, two, three. God sin. Some of you are not participating right now, and that really bothers me. So I need you to participate. I know you're mad about the masks, but just engage me right now. One, two, three. God, sin, Christ, and you. You can't make it any more simple than this. It's the gospel. I like how Don Carson, one of my seminary professors, said it so well years ago. One of the most intellectual men that I've ever met. He said the gospel is deep enough for an elephant to bathe in, and yet it's simple enough for a child to play in. It's deep enough for an elephant to bathe in, simple enough for a child to play in. It's why we teach the gospel to our kindergartners here at church, and they accept Jesus. Not because they're naive, but because their souls long for God. And it's why some of us are still plumbing the depths of it 40, 50, 60 years later. We need to be very clear about this message to others. And one last thought before we move on. We need to not take away from it. And we need not add to it. But one of the reasons I give you the gospel in four words here is because, again, it's uncanny. Christians are wily. I've noticed over the years that some Christians tend to take away from this. And some try to add to it. What do you mean take away from it, Jamie? Well, we we like that first word, God. And we love that second or third word, Christ. And we really like the fact of you. But then we sort of blot this one out. (laughs) You ever notice that? Like Christians go, I don't want to talk about sin. I mean, that's kind of the downer of the whole thing. Here's the point. And maybe this will help. If you don't talk about sin, 
and specifically their sin as you confess your own, then there's no need for a savior, amen? And I hear people try to get around this. They'll say, well, accept Jesus and he'll be your best cosmic buddy. Accept Jesus and he'll help your marriage. Accept Jesus and he'll make you wealthy. Accept Jesus and he'll heal your damaged emotions. Accept Jesus and he'll help you have pretty, pretty good kids. Accept Jesus and all these things will happen in your life. Now again, those might all come. But here's what you guys need to understand. None of that is the gospel. The gospel never promised us great marriages, all of our emotions healed, our kids turning out well, money in the bank. Though again, God might bless you with all of that. But that's not the gospel. The gospel centers around you going to hell (laughs) and your sin that separates you from him, which is what you feel in your soul before you come to Jesus. And God, sin, Christ, your atonement, and you, that's the gospel. Don't take away from it. Jonah didn't. He gave a clear message. And then again, really quickly, we tend to add to it as well. This one really bothers me. It's the legalists among us. You know, we say to people, well, you know, your life is kind of a mess and, you know, you're kind of confused about your sexuality and you're drinking too much and you curse like a sailor. And so, you know, why don't we just kill all those birds with one stone? And you repent of all that and, and also accept Jesus. And I sit there and go, well, that kind of complicates things, doesn't it? I mean, before I came to know Jesus, my Bible tells me that I was dead in my trespasses and sins. How about you? that I was incapable of doing the good that God wants me to do. That only through Jesus over time am I gonna become the man that God wants me to be. What a glorious thing. So why then would we say to people, on the day that they're accepting Christ, you might you need to give up all this and you need to change right now and you start coming to church and let me teach you how to tithe. All those things are gonna come. Don't add those to it. Meet people where they're at, help them come to Jesus and God as you're going to see in a second here, we'll take care of all of that. So you want to run well for God. First and foremost, be utterly clear about the message you bring to others. Jonah was, and we can be too. Now, we're, we're fast running out of time. So there's a second thing that Jonah shows us. And I'll just warn you right now in a good way. That first one was kind of biting and hard. And I, and I was a little bit hard on you here. You're going to love this second one. You really are. And, and this is contained right in the text. And that is to remember that it is God who changes hearts, not us. So what does Jonah teach us? That it's God who changes people, not us. Now, as I say quite often, this might be the only point that some of you need to hear today. Here's why this one matters so much, and I know how you think. When you and I hear that God wants us to run for him, and then we hear that this means we need to take his message into the culture around us, if you're at all like me, there are times that you think, oh, stink, but what if they don't listen? What if they reject me? What if I mess it up? What if I say something stupid? What if they don't get it? What if they ask me something I can't answer? In other words, we play this what-if game and we put all this pressure on ourselves to make something happen. And honestly, before you know it, I've seen this in a lot of us, it's more about us than it even is them. (laughs) We're more concerned about us than we are really about them and their eternity. And what Jonah screams to us today, and you're gonna like this, is that the pressure is off, you and me. Let me show you what I mean. One of the things you probably noticed here, and it's clear in the story, is there was an enormous task given to Jonah, right? Like an enormous task. I mean, he was called to preach to the entire 
city of Nineveh. Nineveh, you might remember, is the capital back then of Assyria, where modern-day Iraq is, northeast of Israel. And verse 3 tells us a little bit about Nineveh, this capital of Assyria. It says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. I'm going to relate this a little bit to Scottsdale right now. I'm not saying that Scottsdale is a modern Nineveh, but, but simply to point out, Scottsdale is a very long city, a very narrow city. And again, it's 20 plus miles long. And Nineveh was very similar in size to Scottsdale, believe it or not. Nineveh, we know from our archaeology, was 55 miles in circumference. Massive city for back then. And it had walls all the way around the city, at some points 100 feet high, and had over 1,500 towers along these walls. It was a massive city back then. And the population of Nineveh was anywhere between 120,000, which would be about half of Scottsdale, or it could have been upwards of a million. And you say, why the discrepancy? Well, we're going to see next week in chapter 4 that the book ends by giving a description of the Ninevites as these people. It says there's 120,000 of them that don't know their right hand from their left. Isn't that interesting how it describes them? Nineveh, this great city, 120,000 who don't know their right hand from their left. And commentators, Bible experts, don't know what to do with that. And it means one of two things. It either means that these people were so uneducated and, quite frankly, dopes that they didn't know their right hand from their left. And that's why they needed God so badly. Or what some suggest is it could mean that that was describing the children in Nineveh. Again, a child, before they're of age, don't know their right hand from their left. And if that's the case, then it had 120,000 kids and a lot more adults. So our best guess is that there's anywhere between 120,000 and a million people uh, in, in Nineveh, a, a city about the size of Scottsdale. And Jonah, either way, is called to preach to the entire city. Now, don't miss this. Single-handedly about their sin. And verse 4 tells us how he did this. He took one day, which you could actually do, to walk straight through the center of this 55-mile circumference city, and he yelled as he did in 40 days, and Nineveh will be no more, and then probably added, hey, you got to repent and turn to God. So picture a guy walking down Scottsdale Road. That's why I said I'm related to Scottsdale. Screaming a message of repentance. That's Jonah. And that's the setting that we have for chapter three. It must have been quite a sight. Now, with this background, this is what I've been leading up to all this time. Look closely with me at the results. What happens in verses five, six, and eight when Jonah shares this message of repentance. This is critical. It says in verse five, and the people of Nineveh believed in God. Again, we're kind of immune to these phrases. So they believed in God. That's kind of big given the narrative of this story, if you're tracking with this. This was a very decadent nation. They believed in Assyrian idols. They thought the Israelites were nuts. They did not believe in Jehovah or Yahweh or the law or the commandments. And yet... Because Jonah ran down Scottsdale Road saying repent, they believed in Yahweh or Jehovah, they believed in God. Then look at verses 5 and 6, the end of 5 and end of 6. It says, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. 
Some of you know the Old Testament, know what this is about. Simply put, sackcloth and ashes, these burlap sacks that they would exchange for their clothes and sitting in literal ashes, was a symbol, it was a sign of their humility and brokenness. So when you put on sackcloth and ashes in that culture, it was a sign that you were grieving, that you were mourning, that you were humble, that you were broken. You did it in times of death and you did it in times when God was ticked at you. And the whole nation is engaging in this symbol and even the king is engaging in this. So you had the fact that they believe, they have this symbol of their repentance. And then notice verse eight, it says, the king is speaking in his decree and he says, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God, here it is, and let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So again, they weren't just giving lip service to God when they said they believed. They weren't even just saying, I'm going to engage in this cultural symbolic thing of sackcloth and ashes to show what might be in my heart. No, they put their money where their mouth was, if you will, and they changed their moral behavior. So add it all up. They believed, they had symbolic gestures, they had actions of repentance. All this, an entire city changing and repenting because one man that nobody had ever heard of preached a simple message of repentance or else. And again, I know how you, some of you think. You're thinking, well, hey, that's the Bible. Things like that happen. Not all the time. Abraham and Lot tried it with Sodom and Gomorrah and it didn't work. Noah tried it with his generation and it rained and rained and rained and they all died. Jesus tried it with his hometown of Nazareth and it didn't work. So we have plenty of examples in the Bible, old and new, where God's person gave the message and, and they didn't respond positively. But here, against all odds, it works. And how do you explain that? The answer is simple. It's God. <laughs> Only God. Because you see, it's God who changes hearts, not us. He tells us how to run for him. He says, leave the results to me and don't you worry about it. Don't you even fret about it. And the reason that this is so important for you and I to latch on to is that again, we put so much pressure on ourselves today. Some of you, I mean, like as soon as you found out what I was gonna talk about, you're like, oh, I don't wanna hear this. I get that. But take the pressure off. God asks you to run for him. Be clear about the message and let him run the show because it's his show. This one will be a great verse for some of you. Jesus is speaking, John 16. Uh, I think it's, I say verses eight through 11 is one of those. <laughs> and, and, and Jesus is talking about the spirit. He says, and when he, the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I, I put it in yellow there because we tend to gloss over this. Notice what Jesus says. He will be the one to come and he will convict people. You ever met a Christian that tries to play the role of the Holy Spirit? <laughs> like a lot of us do that. You know, I'm just gonna make sure that person knows what a sinner they are and I'm gonna make sure that person knows this and they need to do that and all this. And, and it's like, whoa, slow down, Tiger. God has already said that this is his show. Here's how you need to understand it. You don't have the power to change the composition of a human heart. Did you know that? You don't even have the power to change the trajectory of a human life. It actually bothers me when I hear somebody say, I led so-and-so to Jesus. You ever heard a Christian say that? You know, I led so-and-so to Christ. And I go, well, technically you didn't. 
technically speaking, you shared a message that could have gone either way. It could have been Sodom and Gomorrah, Nazareth, rain time in the time of Noah, or it could have been a Jonah experience. It wasn't in your hands. You shared a message and God entered in and decided to change a life. And folks, this should free us up tremendously. It ain't about you. It's about them. And again, it's a very quick side note because we're gonna gotta wrap this up here soon. This also means, and again, this should help you, that you don't have to do everything right and perfect. It's God's show and he understands you're human and he gets this. We're gonna see this a little bit more next week, but (laughs) we're gonna learn next week that Jonah has a really piss poor attitude in chapter three here, really in the whole book. Like next week, you're going to see that though this guy was basically saying, you know, turn or burn, he was actually hoping they would burn. He was actually hoping they wouldn't listen to him. And yet, isn't it ironic that you got this prophet with a bad attitude walking down Scottsdale Road, giving the message that God wants them to give, his heart's not even completely right, and God decides to use it anyways. Only God. True story, years ago when I uh, first became a Christian, I was in early college, late high school, early college, and, uh, and, and at one point I was involved with this group called Campus Crusade for Christ, it's now called Crew, it was a fellowship organization, and one of the things they would do is over the spring break, instead of sending us all off to party, which many of us didn't want to do anyways, now that we were saved, they said, hey, let's go down to Florida, hey, that sounds fun, and let's go to the beach, and let's share the message of Jesus with people on the beach, And I thought, hey, that sounds wonderful, until I found out that that would be kind of awkward. You know, these people were down there to get drunk and party, and we were down there to kind of get our message across. And yet, God was in that. Uh, Bill Bright, the head of this years ago, had wrote this little book called The Four Spiritual Laws, which was like a tract, a booklet, that would help share what the gospel is. And so all week long, our, 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 our task was this. We were to go out in groups of two, out on the beach and find anybody that would be willing to listen to us and we'd say, you know, are you interested in spiritual things? And if they were, we'd give it our best shot to get the message out. One day I went out with a gal who was from my college there and, uh, and, and we were walking on the beach and, uh, and we saw this guy that can only be described as a beach bum. I mean, he just really kind of a pathetic life and, and I don't think he was drunk, but he had been and, uh, and, and he was just sort of sitting there on the beach and, and this gal, rightly so, walked up to him and said, hey, uh, do you mind if I share some spiritual things with you? And he was kind of caught off guard. And he said, okay. And I kid you not, she just took the booklet out and she just started reading it to him. Didn't even look at him. She said, law one, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Law two, you're a sinner and you need to repent of your sin. Law three, Jesus Christ is the atonement for your sins and you need to believe and trust in him. Law four, you need to trust him as your Lord and Savior. She's literally reading this tract to him. And the whole time I'm sitting there thinking he ain't gonna buy that. I mean, you're not even looking him in the eye. You're not relating to him. I don't think that's how they intended this to be. It feels so rote. It feels as fake as a $3 bill. And I kid you not, you can't make this stuff up. At the end of it, she said, do you want to pray to receive Jesus? And I thought he might say yes just to get her out of the way. But he looked at her and with compassion and remorse and literally a tear in his eye, he said, I really would. And I wanted to say, no, you don't. 
She did it all wrong. I'm not even sure she knows what she just read to you. You can't be ready to, you gotta have more questions. And I thought, just get out of the way, because why? God's doing something in this. And again, there have been times where I have shared the gospel and I've done it so brilliantly that I think they have to receive Christ. And they don't. And there's other times where I don't feel like I'm on my game and I I share my faith and lo and behold, they're, they're ready. And again, how do you explain that, gang? It's God. Take the pressure off yourself. It's God. Jonah didn't do everything right. God still used him to bring a sinful city to himself. I think he can use us as well. So uh, let's start to wrap this up. As you and I run for God, bringing his message to our culture, we must be clear about the message. We need to remember it's God who changes hearts, not us. And then lastly, very quickly, we need to honor that this is a process. Honor that this is a process. So one last time, let's look at the text because it's here. It, It says in verse four, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. Now here it is. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Why 40 days? Have you ever thought about that? And some of you go, well, God must always give people time. He didn't give Sodom and Gomorrah 40 days. (laughs) When Jesus sent the the disciples out, the 70, two by two, he didn't give them 40 days. He essentially said that if they don't listen to you, brush the dust off your feet and move on to the next town. Why 40 days? I I think it's to honor and to reveal to us that, that most of the time, Believing and repenting, coming to God, in this case coming to Jesus, is a process. And God wanted to give the Ninevites plenty of time to think, to talk about it, ponder, possibly pray. It's a process. And so our job as we run for God is simply to honor the process and hang in there with people through it. As I've said to you before, there are some people that I've been hanging in there for almost 40 years, more. I'm still hanging in there with my best friend from third grade. <laughs> and it's a process for some. It might take a few days for some, a few weeks, years. It might take a lifetime. So don't be discouraged when it doesn't happen overnight. Allow it to be a process. Just hang in there with people as the process continues. I was actually very excited to talk about the subject with you today. I know some of you get defensive when we talk about this. But the reason I was excited is because this idea of running for God, now don't miss this, is truly what separates the men from the boys, the women from the gals, when it comes to Jesus' followers. It really does. As I said earlier, everybody runs from God. Most learn how to run to him. But, but very few move into the waters of running for him. And yet that's where the joy is really, truly found. We run for God. And when we do, we become useful in his hands, useful in our lives. Let me just take a few extra minutes, share with you something very emotional for me. And uh, you'll see, I think it might touch you as well uh, as we close and before we bring up our, our pastors to close. As I mentioned to you guys a few uh, weeks ago that part of what God has done to me during the COVID thing is upped my prayer life. He did it because one, I had some more time as I was social distancing. Secondly, uh, there's a lot going on in our culture today, not just with the pandemic, but also with racism and and the riots and and all the stuff going on around us, the economy. And uh, so I upped my prayer life. And and for many of you, as you were hurting, one of the things that I noticed as I upped my prayer life is that 
you know, the way we're taught to pray as Protestants, which is very, very good, is just have at it and talk to God. I mean, that's why I was taught to pray when I accepted Christ. I didn't get saved in a, in a more ritualistic environment, like Episcopalian or something like that. I got saved in a Bible church and people just said, hey, talk to God. You know, maybe use that Acts thing to guide, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, but just have at it, talk to God, he's your father. And I do that all the time. But as I was praying more and more, I, I, I got open to some other ways to supplement or help my praying. And it's actually been very meaningful for me. One of the things that I did is I, I bought a little bracelet. I don't wear much jewelry at all, but I, I bought this because I had read about it in a book. This is a, a, a Greek Orthodox prayer bracelet. Now, do not send me emails accusing me of becoming a Greek Orthodox. I'm not. I think we can learn from other traditions. And, and, and as I read about this, I thought, hey, I think I can adopt that to my own life. So I ordered this Greek Orthodox bracelet. And, and all it is, it's got a cross on it, but then it has all these knots around it. I counted like 50 plus their necklaces have like a hundred. And, and here's what they do in the Greek Orthodox Church. The, they, 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 they take it and, and they, they go to the first bead and they simply pray the Jesus prayer. That's what they use this bracelet for. And you're saying, what's the Jesus prayer? It comes right out of the New Testament. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It comes from two places in the New Testament, uh, the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, and here's what they do that didn't work for me. They pray that prayer over and over again, and they mean it, like around every bead. So, you know, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, you know, and the first couple of days I tried it. I went all the way around the bracelet. And for me, it just felt monotonous. And it wasn't as meaningful, though I agree with that prayer wholeheartedly. And then I started doing this. And it really revolutionized my prayer life is I'd get to like the fifth beat. And I thought, okay, I get it. I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. I've already accepted him. And I thought, but maybe I can start praying this for some people around me. And it got really emotional for me. Because I, I started praying for people that don't know Jesus. Vera, you're gonna, you're gonna love this. I, I started to say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on so-and-so, a sinner. I prayed for wayward family members by name. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on so-and-so, a sinner. And then I got to people that I really care about that don't know the Lord. And I found myself tearing up as I prayed, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on them, a sinner. And then I started praying for people that I just love, that I don't need mercy to. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on Neil, a sinner. And then as I went and did this even more, I thought, you know, the Bible just doesn't call us sinners. It calls us saints. And I thought, I wonder if I could develop a prayer for us as saints. And it hit me, and I'm glad I know the Bible. I added my own prayer and I call it the Holy Spirit prayer and I pray that now, I mix it in along with the Lord's prayer and other prayers. Here's the Holy Spirit prayer that I wrote. Holy Spirit, sent from the Father, set me apart for your purposes, a saint. Holy Spirit, sent from the Father, set me apart for your purposes, a saint. And again, I don't know how much I'm gonna use this. I mean, I never look at it. It reminds me to pray more. That's probably the most potent thing. But it's been very meaningful to my prayer life to pray the Jesus prayer, and to pray what I call the spirit prayer. And as I go out the door each day, I'm reminded that I am a sinner saved by Jesus and have mercy on me no matter what befalls me today, Jesus. And use me for your purposes. May I run for you 
because I'm a saint now that I've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And again, maybe that's helpful for you. We can never pray enough. This has helped me to do that. And maybe just that story will help you. We need to run for God, all of us. I believe that we can. God, thank you for this amazing story of Jonah and how he takes us not just from running from you and to you, but as we're seeing today, Lord, even for you. And Lord, even as we say running for you, the pressure is off because all we're doing is taking a clear message to those around us who need to hear. And Lord, you take over from that point. You're the one who loves everybody on planet earth and desires them to come home to you. And so, Lord, as we each give thought to our own environment, our own setting, our own culture, God, would you please use us and give us that Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 boldness as we talk to those around us. May we not be afraid. And if we are afraid, may we have courage, God, to just enter into the fray and realize that you're in control. You got this as you have our own very lives. That's my prayer, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.